All righty. That's just to kind of make sure that we're all on the same page. I'm not going to try to bore you with doing too much review, but I think it's important we always understand where we are in this book and why we're in this particular place in our book, uh, the book of Colossians. But we're all aware of the fact that Paul is dealing with Gnosticism or a form of Gnosticism in the city of Colossae there at that particular church. So he spends the first chapter dealing with Gnosticism by proving what major point? What's the most important, what's the overall theme of chapter 1? All right, salvation is through Jesus, that Jesus is the one that saves you. Now, along with that component is the idea, for, of course, that you don't need anything else because Jesus is all you need. You, he is the completeness of Jesus, or the completeness of God, the fullness of God. He is God, so you don't need anything else. Uh, it knocks down all the different things that Gnosticism taught, that, that God didn't create the world because he talks about how that Jesus Christ, who is God, created the world. It takes care of all the other things about as far as sinful flesh and how that they kept emphasizing that, but our sins have been redeemed and forgiven because of what Jesus Christ has done. He spends the whole first chapter just impressing and putting into the hearts of the Colossians that because of what Jesus Christ did, you are saved. Don't listen to these Gnostics saying you're not saved. You're saved, and it's by the blood of Jesus Christ. So that's a very positive chapter. He deals in very positive things. But now we're in chapter 2, and he's going negative, if you will. Now he's attacking the Gnostics on some of the, the ideas that they hold as far as the things they were be, that were being taught in the church there. And we talked about how that uh, they shouldn't listen to the philosophies of men. They shouldn't listen to any traditions. They shouldn't get involved in any kind of astrology. Uh, they shouldn't... Um, get concerned about trying to keep the right of circumcision because even though it's being taught, you don't have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And then, of course, he, he got to verse, we got to verse 14, and he points out the fact that there's no reason at all for us to, to observe any kind of Jewish ordinance or anything pertaining to the old law because of what? He nailed it to the cross. And then so he goes on and talks about how that they should not let anybody judge them as far as meat or drink or inspect of holy day or new moon or of Sabbath day. And that's where we stopped last week. And I was wanting to, not last week, but two weeks ago. And I was hoping we get to verse 17 because that's the summation of what he's talking about. After saying that the old law had been done away with and no one should judge you concerning the old law, he says in verse 17, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, what does he mean when he says, what, which is a shadow of the things to come? All right. Everything else was like a type of what the antitype is going to be. It was a, a, a forerunner of what the actual is. The text has this in the King James, but the body is of Christ. That carries with not the idea of the body like a physical body of Christ, but it's talking about that which is substance, that which is real. Uh, we sometimes, um, uh, years ago, we saw a commercial television about uh, Coke being the real thing. Well, what the ad was talking about was that 
anything other than Coke is, is not the real thing. It's a substitute. It's not real. Only Coke is the real thing. And Paul is saying everything under the old law, everything that pertained to the old law was not the real thing. That only Jesus Christ is the real thing. Everything in the old law was setting the stage for Jesus Christ. And shadow is a very good use of, of a word here. The writer of Hebrews uses this word many times when he's talking about the old law, but Paul uses it here. And it's a very appropriate word because think about it, the idea of a shadow. Can a shadow of a dog bite you? Can't, can you, Steve? No, you don't have to be worried about a shadow of a dog, do you? It can't bite you at all. What about the shadow of a sword? Can it cut you? No. Well, the point that Paul is making here is that the law is not real. It can't save you. And, of course, he's already emphasized this point before that, you know, no matter how hard you work, there's no way in the world that the law could save you. It was impossible to keep. And so it was just a shadow of what salvation is. True salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. And so in the Old Testament, you had um, sacrifices being made. You had endless sacrifices being made of animals. But did they actually do any good? No, it was just a shadow. Uh, Paul, uh, the writer of Hebrews reminds us, he says, but the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. Um, the priesthood that existed under the old law, uh, it was all... Man, it had all kinds of requirements and all kinds of details about it was all about. But what was the problem with the Levitical priesthood? Couldn't The person that was in charge of the high priest, he couldn't even keep the law. So how in the world could he be a mediator between God and man when he's got his own problems, his own sins? On the Day of Atonement, the high priest, before he could offer any sacrifices for anybody else, had to go in and offer sacrifice for himself. But Jesus Christ is the real. He's the true high priest. He's the true priesthood. Um, the law under Moses, it was a good thing. Paul says that many times. But once again, the law could not save. It was just a shadow. It takes Jesus Christ to save him. The Sabbath was something that the Israelites kept. It was a day of rest. But it's just a shadow of the true rest that we find in heaven. And so everything about the old law was just simply a shadow. Um, the point that Paul is making here as he ties this into verse 16 is that Christ replaces the regulations with redemption. The old law was just full of all kinds of regulations, but Jesus Christ comes along and replaces it with redemption. Um, why do you think that this was a temptation to people? Before we leave this, I want to talk about this a couple of weeks ago, but why in the world would anybody be tempted to keep the law of Moses that was a Christian? Why would anybody be tempted to listen to these Gnostics that are saying, you've got to do this, you've got to do this if you're going to be saved? What would be the temptation there to leave Jesus Christ and what he says and, and get involved in this? All right, and Paul's going to say some more about that in just a minute. It gives you the ability to be superior because legalism, this is what's being talked about is legalism. Legalism gives you a way that you can measure. You ever thought about that? The law and legalism gave you a way to say, well, I've done this, I've done this, I've done this, and you haven't. 
And therefore, I'm superior to you as far as my religion and my spirituality is concerned. And so there was a temptation uh, to that. And it's interesting that he says that because of the fact of what he's going to say next. But before we get to verse 18, anything else about verse 17? All right, after saying that um, the old law, don't worry about keeping it. If it's just a shadow of the real. Notice what he says now in verse 18. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and the worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which have not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. Now, we could spend the entire night on this one verse right here because there is so much going on here. Well, let's start breaking it down into pieces. First of all, he says, let no man beguile you of your reward. I'm just curious, what some other translations have? Cheat, okay. Or disqualify you. The word in the Greek that the King James translates beguiled, you know, you think when somebody beguiles you, you're trying to pull a trick on them. But it's more of the idea of you're involved in an athletic contest and you get to the finish line and there's an unfair judge or an umpire, umpire somebody that says, nope, you're disqualified. You've, you've, you've made this entire journey, you've ran this entire race, You've done everything you're supposed to do, but when you get to the finish line, you've been disqualified. And Paul is saying that if you do all these things that these people want you to do, you may do very well at them. You may make it all the way to the finish line, but guess what? When you get to the finish line, it don't count. It just doesn't count because what you're doing has nothing to do with your salvation. Look at some of the things that um, they were trying to do. As far as uh, this was concerned, he talks about voluntary humanity, humility. Now, what in the world is that talking about? All right, false humility. All right. What was, what was a big part of Gnosticism? What was the main, one of the main tenets of Gnosticism? Flesh is evil. And so the Gnostics came up with an idea, and Paul's going to spend a lot of time talking about this in the rest of this chapter here. This is his main emphasis for the rest of the chapter. They would practice things to show that the body was evil, and therefore they would attack the body. And at the same time they're attacking the body, what are they doing by letting everybody know they're attacking the body? Look at me. Oh, I'm, I'm so humble. I'm so spiritual. Oh, I'm trying to serve the Lord to the best of my ability, and, and, and therefore I'm, I'm denying myself these foods. I'm denying myself a, a nice warm bed. I'm wearing sackcloth and ashes. Every now and then I pick up a whip and I beat myself in the back. Um, they came up with all kinds of ways to show that the flesh was evil and to punish the flesh, but it wasn't just for the purpose of being saved as they were teaching. It was to show, um, you know, I'm one of those. I'm, I'm so humble. I have, I have bowed myself down. I have beat myself down all in the name of spirituality. And so, um, it's a, it, 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 was it your translation that said false humility, Karen? It's a false humility because they're doing nothing as far as their spirituality is concerned. They're doing nothing to please God. As Paul's going to tell us a little bit, all they're doing is pleasing themselves because it makes them feel good is the idea that he talks about. But then he goes on and says, the worshiping of angels. The worshiping of angels. 
We've already talked about how that Gnostics believe that, G- that God could not have created the earth because he's totally good and the earth was totally bad because it is flesh. And so God had to put in a series of intermediaries, if you will, keep getting further and further away of God, from God and closer and closer to flesh. And these intermediators were angels and other beings. And so the Gnostics came up with this idea that if you wanted to speak to God, if you wanted to get close to God at all, you couldn't go to him directly because you're flesh. And there's a principle involved in that. And that's why we have Jesus Christ as our intercessor. We can't go before God. We need someone who is a perfect high priest. But they believed that in order to do this, you had to go through a series of angels. And um, because you couldn't address God directly, so you would pray to a certain angel, and that angel would take your case before the next angel, and that angel would take his case before the next angel. And finally, you'd be separated far enough from the world that finally that last angel could talk to God and take care of your situation for you. Now, I see Jeff back there shaking his head. Just the idea of of worshiping angels or praying to angels seems absurd. But did you know if you go back and look at church history that there is still, was still talk of people praying to the archangel Michael all the way until 725 A.D.? 700 years after the church was established, people were still praying to angels. But you know what? We got a little bit of that going on today. So you're shaking your head. How do we have that going on today? All right. We got people who pray to saints today, which seems very absurd to me. Why would anybody want to pray to a saint when you can pray to, you know, pray to God through Jesus Christ? But that's the idea, and this is the same idea here, that they were worshiping the angels because of the fact that somehow no, they thought worshiping its angels would gain them advantage with Jesus Christ or with God. Now, it goes on, and the King James butchered it right here. I'll just be honest with you. Um, it translates the Greek this way, intruding into those things which he hath not seen. That is a real rough translation. What's somebody else got? So you say what they have seen, and this, the King James says what they have not seen. That's what I'm saying, why it's messed up. But what's going on here? They go into great detail. It's in connection with worshiping of angels. What do you think maybe Paul is alluding to here? They were having visions. Yeah, I'm sorry, Mike, I didn't give you time to answer there. They were having visions. And so they were saying that by the worshiping these angels and praying these angels, uh, they were um, saying, I have special revelation from God. Uh, Because I prayed to the right angels and God talked to that angel and that angel told me, and now I have a special revelation from God. And I don't care what the Bible says. I'm a Gnostic. I'm the knowing one. I know something you don't know. I've got a better revelation, and I got it directly from one of these angels we're worshiping. Now, once again, that sounds absurd, but one of, one of the denominations that we have in the world today, the reason why they exist, all is based upon the fact that an angel appeared to a certain person and started the whole church. A guy by the name of Joseph Smith. Book of Mormon is because these angels appeared to Joseph Smith and he, they gave him the golden tablets and he put these golden tablets in a, in a hat. He looked in a hat and was able to make the Book of Mormon out of it. That's really what happened according to them. But so once again, these Gnostics were saying, we are special people. Why? Because we have intruded, uh, the King James says, intruded into those things which he hath not seen. 
Clearly, he's talking about visions. And because of that, as the text says, that, um, that they are vainly popped up by his fleshly mind. In other words, they, are, uh, they think that they're somebody who is special. Now, Paul is making a contrast here. Remember how, and it was mentioned in Karen's text in verse 18, how they have false humility? Well, what were they really after? They really were after wanting to be puffed up. Uh, all this false humility they thought they were participating in were showing to other people, uh, they, were, they were doing the same thing. Absolutely. And um, so they were doing all kinds of outward things to show people uh, how humble they were, but the whole purpose of it was so they could be puffed up and think, look at me. Yes, Flo. Well, if anybody tells me that, they, that Jesus came and appeared to them, I have to call him a liar because Paul says I was the last one to see him. And he was the last one to have a vision of Jesus Christ and it was on the road to Damascus. And he just says it in 1 Corinthians 15, 8. He was last seen by me. And so nobody else has seen him. And Paul was the last one. So I would be very skeptical if somebody uh, says such a thing to me. Anything else anybody like to add? Well, think about what's all going on here. First of all, in verse 18, he says, Let no man beguile you of your reward or um, take away something that you have earned. And I, we didn't really talk about this, but I don't want to spend just a few seconds on this. How in the world could what they were doing uh, take away their reward? How could what the Gnostics were making them do take away their reward? All right, you've changed the faith. What have you changed your faith to? What? The law? Or what were you going to say, Mike? You were going to have something? Uh -huh. All right. It's putting your faith in something other than Jesus Christ. If you do what they're saying, where are you putting your faith? In my ability to perform. All these different things they want me to do, that's where I'm putting my faith. If I just... Um, Walk over these hot coals that this Gnostic guy says I need to walk over and I have redemption. Where have you put your faith in? You've put it in your, the idea of whether or not I can walk over those hot coals. And we need to be very careful. Um, I think a sin that we sometimes miss that we're guilty of, and we have to be very careful of this, and I have to remind myself of this constantly because I believe it is a sin, is that sometimes we do depend on self too much and don't depend on Jesus Christ like we should. And folks, that's, that's wrong. That's sinning. Uh, we sometimes beat ourselves up because we're not everything that we're supposed to be. And we should strive to be the very best that we can be. But yet at the same time, we've got to be careful that we don't, aren't guilty of putting our faith in ourselves and not putting it in Jesus Christ. And that's, you know, that's what they were going to be guilty of if they put all their emphasis on what they could do and not uh, what God could do. And of course... Um, Everything they were doing was for an outward sign. They wanted to make sure everybody saw how humble they were for the purpose of lifting people up. And once again, we as Christians need to be very careful of that because don't we sometimes judge other people because we don't think they're as spiritual as we are? And don't we sometimes come up with our own artificial rules, if you will, 
to say I'm a better Christian than they are because of the fact that maybe I do something differently or better than they do? I don't know what all those different things are, but I know that we're guilty of it because I've had discussions with people and people talk about, well, you know, so-and-so, well, da-da-da-da. And so we need to be very careful that we're not guilty of the same thing. Um, Once again, legalism is a serious, serious sin because it allows us to measure our Christianity, and then after we measure our Christianity, we have the ability to say, I'm a better Christian than someone else. Well, you may be a better Christian than someone else, but that's not what you're supposed to decide. That's decided by God the judge and his son Jesus Christ. So we just need to be very, very careful of that. But once again, these people were involved in and showing an outward sign of how humble they were, and it was for the purpose of making them look better than they were. Years ago, I don't even remember what the situation was. I don't know if Karen and I were already married or not, but for some reason, I got a job on weekends uh, working at a brand-new Walmart that got built in Rock Hill, and I came in on the weekends to set the store up for them. That was a part-time thing. I was working another job. I wanted to make some extra money, but they were wanting people to come in and put up all the end caps and put up all the shelving and get everything ready for the store to open. And once the store opened, I didn't have anything to do with it. But <clears throat> there was a lady that was working with me that was my uh, work partner or whatever. And, of course, in our discussions, I explained to her I was a member of the church and whatnot and you know, invited to church and whatnot. Well, you know what she started doing from then on every time that I saw her? Every time I saw her, she was lifting up holy hands and she was talking to God and praising God. Praise God. Well, what was she doing? I mean, I don't want to attack her sincerity, but she was trying to show me how religious she was by an outward sign. Saying, praise God. And she kept lifting. No, she would get a shelf fixed. Praise God. And I, you can tell that was so long ago, but it still made impression upon my head. I thought, you know, you're not impressing me at all by this, but she thought she was. And that's kind of what was going on here. These people were, were impressing others by saying, look how spiritual I am because I jumped through all these man-made hoops that you have created for me. In fact, the idea of, of fleshly mind is the human way of thinking. According to the human way of thinking, you were doing this. This is not the godly way of thinking. You were doing this in the human way. But he goes on, and I'm going to run out of time, so I'm going to try to finish this chapter tonight. <clears throat> he goes on in verse 19. He says, not holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands have nourished and ministered and knit together, increased with the increase of God. Uh, He, in a very long way, has pointed out the fact that if you want to achieve spiritual growth, if you want to achieve salvation, if you want to be pleasing to God, you need to do what? Hold fast to Christ. Um, in my particular edition of, of the New Testament here, I have head capitalized. And I don't know how many of you head, H-E-D, head. Yeah, what do you think I said? Cannibalize? Oh, you never listen to me. <laughs> and the point is that if you want to, to be saved, you really want to grow, you really want to be more spiritual, you have to behold the head. And the head, of course, is Jesus Christ. He's already stated that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. Now, obviously, the people that he's talking about here, that he is 
saying negative things about, he accuses them of not holding the head or beholding the head or giving the head the one that can save them. And Mike mentioned a few moments ago about turning your back on Jesus Christ. These Gnostics had literally turned their backs on Jesus Christ and have decided that their own way is the best way of salvation. But Paul is saying here that regardless of who you are in the church, that's why he mentions joints and bands, knit together, unified together, some translations say. He says, which all the body, everybody in the church, the way they're going to grow spiritually, the way they're going to find the substance they need in Christianity is through Jesus Christ. None of this other stuff is going to work, regardless of who you are. It applies to everybody. So he goes on, and then in verse 20, he says, Wherefore, if ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, why, as through living, though living in the world, are ye subject to ordinances? And I was going to read the next verse. Touch not, taste not, handle not, which are all which all are to perish with using after the commandments and doctrines of men. And once again, we've got a lot going on here. First of all, he brings out the fact that when we became Christians, and he had already alluded to this when he was talking about circumcision, but when we became Christians, we died with Jesus Christ. When Jesus died on the cross, he died for the forgiveness of our sins. We share that death with him. And when he died, he put to death all these fleshly rules that these men have been talking about, whether it be the law of Moses or it be some other law that man has. And so he asked the question, if you've become a Christian, if your salvation happened through Jesus Christ, when you went into the watery grave of baptism and you rise to walk in newness of life, when you were dead, dead, buried, and rose again, why in the world are you going to go back to these things these rules that these men have come up with for you to follow. You have freedom in Christ. You don't need to be a slave to the ordinances of this world. And then he mentions something in verse 21 in parentheses that um, a lot of people think that he is actually quoting from some Gnostic writing right here. And it says, he just mentions these ordinances, these rules, these decrees that these men came up with involve touching not, tasting not, and handling not. Now, here's the interesting thing. You can find 20 different uh, commentaries, say 20 different things about what Paul was talking about when he said touch not, taste not, handle not. So we don't know specifically what he is talking about, but it's something that the Colossians knew exactly what he was talking about. As I said, a lot of people believe that he's actually quoting some of their writings. And, but we get the general premise. What were they saying? By touch not, taste not, handle not. All right? The, the idea of co- the concept, though, of touch not, taste not, handle not, it's the do not part of it I want you to think about. <laughs> All right? It's the idea of of self-denial. You'll be more spiritual if you don't eat this food. You'll be more spiritual if you don't do this. You'll be more spiritual if you... Well, there's all kinds of things they came up with. Prolonged fasting. 
You'll be more spiritual if you prolong fast. Uh, if you wear special clothing that digs into your skin, whether it be some kind of rough hair, like camel hair, or whether it be like little needles that stick into your skin, let's abuse that body. Let's deny all comfort from that body. Make sure you're in pain all the time. Let's sleep on a bed of spikes, if you will. Let's um, just have bread and water and nothing else. Um, let's um, make sure that you tell people that they can't get married because if you're not married, then that deals with that aspect of the flesh and that way you, you will you'll be more spiritual. You know, we once again think about how crazy all these things are, but if you, I hate not want to pick on the Catholic Church, but you look at the idea of the monasteries. The monasteries were all based on the idea that you would go in there and you pick a specific order and you would take an order like not talk or just eat bread and water or other things to take a, um, to sleep in, in rough clothing, all to prove that you were more spiritual. But they, you know, they were saying that if you want to be more spiritual, you need to d- deny um, yourself. You need to make sure that, that you don't allow yourself to enjoy any pleasure in life. Um, but we got to understand that just pleasure in and of itself is not a bad thing. There are things that God has placed in this life to give us pleasure. Um, Scott, since you're right in front of me, look at 1 Timothy 4, and it's either verse 3 or verse 4. Read verse 3 first, and then if that's not it, we'll go to verse 4. That what God says about the things, or what Paul says that God says about the things of this world, in and of themselves. 1 Timothy 4. He starts off talking in that text about how that there were false teachers who are saying that you needed to not marry and do other things. He's talking about some of the same things he's talking here. And what does he say about the things of this world? First Timothy, read verse 4 first. Try verse 4 first. It is 4, okay. All right, you said creature, but you meant creation, right? Does it say creature in your Bible? It does say creature? Well, okay, that's what I'm looking for. Uh, everything that God created on this earth is good and to be received with thanksgiving. That flies in the face of what these people were saying by saying that if you deny yourself these things, that somehow or another you're, you're more spiritual. Well, that's exactly the opposite of what, uh, what Paul was saying in 1 Timothy 4 and verse 4. I don't either. And, you, of course, we talked about this, I think, two weeks ago. You know, in Acts 10, when Peter was up on the roof, which is a good James Taylor song, um, he, um, the sheet came down full of unclean animals. And what did God tell Peter? He says, what I have called clean, you can't call unclean. But yet, that's what these people were doing. They were calling things unclean. That if you want to be um, more spiritual, uh, you've got to engage in this idea that they've come up with. Verse 22 is a little bit confusing where he finishes the paragraph. He says, which all are to perish with the using. And you need to understand what he's talking about there is that the things they, they were asking them to abstain from uh, had no spiritual value. That once you have did it, you've done nothing. In other words, if I came up to you as a Gnostic and I said, um, Scott, you can't ever eat barbecue again. If you're going to be spiritual as I am, if you want to be on the same plane as I am, you can't eat bar- barbecue again. Well, say that you did that. You never ate barbecue the rest of your life. Guess what? It didn't do you a bit of good whatsoever. 
And that's the idea here. And he's reading, he's leading back up to what he had said earlier, how that, um, you know, this has, this does nothing for you. This does nothing for you whatsoever. Has no spiritual value. And then, yes, ma'am. Right. So it has no value. That's my point. That's the play on words he's making. What you have done in the long run, the things that you're staying away from, they deteriorate. They have no value. And what you have done has no value. This, once again, it's a play on words. And the reason why, and the rest of verse 22 says, and you've already brought out, after the commandments and doctrines of men. These have all come from men. And so they have no value whatsoever. They didn't come from the head that we talked about in verse 19. They came from man. They have no spiritual value whatsoever. And so he gets to verse 23. He says, which things? The things that he's been talking about up to this point. And I believe he's talking about everything that he's talking about, beginning with verse 8, when he talks about through vain uh, deceit, through philosophy and tradition of men and rudiments of the world. I think everything that he's talked about, he says here, which things have indeed a show of wisdom. Now, what do you think he's talking about there? The things, everything that he's talked about that the Gnostics do, he says these things have indeed a show of wisdom. All right, an appearance. According to human logic, this might make sense to you. If somebody said, well, you know, you'll be more spiritual because you're engaging in self-denial, and self-denial is a good thing. It makes you strong. It gives you intestinal fortitude. If you could just do this, I know it will make you a better Christian. And you start thinking about that, and you start thinking, well, you know, that's true. If I could learn to deny self more, that would make me a better Christian. Um, If I came to... Uh, Frankie, and I said, Frankie, I pray six times a day. And I think it will make you a better Christian if you pray six times a day. Well, from a human logic standpoint, you know, that makes sense because you're talking to God more. And there's nothing wrong with talking to God more. But when I tell him he has to do it to be more spiritual, then I violated the command of God because I'm making a rule that doesn't exist. Even from human logic, it makes sense, and it seems like a good thing to do. Uh, The Pharisees, the reason why they got into the situation they got into was not because they didn't have good intents at the beginning. In the beginning, they were trying to find ways to be more spiritual. The problem came when they started binding those ways on other people, and in the purpose of doing so, they have violated the will of God. They teach for doctrines the commandments of men. But then he goes on, because we're running out of time. He says, which things have indeed a show of wisdom in will worship. What is will worship? Is that somebody named Will we find and worship him? Will Rogers, huh? All right, self-imposed worship. Um, Another way of looking at it is worship that involves willpower. It's all about willpower. Self-denial, which is what they were teaching, the ascetic type of religion they were involved in, is that you beat this body up. You deny this body. This body is evil. You do everything you can to abase it and keep it down. Beat that body down. Well, that's willpower. Some people can do it. Some people can't do it. I tell you, I cannot live just on bread and water for the rest of my life. But there were people that were being told that they needed to do that. 
Some people couldn't do it. Oh, you're not a spiritual person. But, but the problem was they just didn't have the willpower. That's will worship. That's the worship of will. How strong is my will? And I can do the things that they do. And the purpose of it, as it says in the very next part of the verse, and humility and neglecting of the body. Beat that body up because if you do, oh, you're so humble. You've abased yourself to show that you're a spiritual person. Do these things so you will. But all it does, as Paul says at the end of verse 23, is to the satisfying of the flesh. In other words, you think you may have accomplished something, but all you've done is satisfy yourself. You've just done something to make yourself feel good. You've not done a thing as far as God is concerned. And so Paul says, this things you should not do. As he began this section in verse 18, don't let someone steal your reward. And our time is up because Jeremy's at the door.